is our firm foundation. We have been working pretty much the whole summer and then through the rest of this month through a section of the book of Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and these Psalms are what are actually songs, that's what a psalm means. And we call this a playlist for pilgrimage because God gave these songs to the ancient people of Israel, the people of God, to put upon their lips as they left their homes where they dwelled out in the countryside or wherever they were. And they made their way up to the great feasts to the city of Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, Jerusalem, up on the mountain where God dwelled, where his temple was and his presence was for these great feasts where they would remember and celebrate all the things that God had done and was doing for them. And so we've been working through the Psalms and saying over and over again that our life, your life, is best lived as a pilgrimage. That is, it is not a series of accruals until you find a place where you feel settled and fine and then life is over. But instead that the best way to live is as a pilgrim. Every step taking you toward a sacred destination. This place where God dwells. This place of his shalom and presence. Today, we're getting really close to the end. Uh, I don't know that it worked exactly like this, but they arranged it for certain reasons. And so back at Psalm 120, they started at their house and we've been moving through the trials and temptations and perils and opportunities of the road. And now they're getting close to the city. And so the psalm that we're going to read is longer and more specific and a little foreign to us than some of the other ones were. Last week, it was just about calming your soul like a weaned child. This week, we're getting close. You can see the ramparts and the banners and the excitement and the trumpets, and you can smell the smells. And they're going up, and they start to tell these specific stories that God gave them to sing together. And so I'm going to do something a little different this morning, which is just read it as I go throughout the sermon rather than right now. So let me open instead in prayer that God would bless this time and that all of it would be used uh, as his own, his own voice to us. Let's pray. Father, there are perhaps millions and billions of voices on the airwaves of the world and certainly many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of voices in our heads and in our communities around us all the time. And so much of it, if we're honest, is empty chap chatter and babble. And this time that we spend together for the next half hour or so might equally be that. If you don't come and do what you promised to do, which is to make your word living and alive and active right now and able like a sword cutting up a piece of steak in the Old Testament at the altar, that you would come and divide our hearts, that you would open us up, that you would speak into us, and that you would reveal what is true to us. And so we pray that you would use this time for our benefit, for your glory, and for the good of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I believe I alluded to this, uh, to this story sometime in the last year, but I didn't really spend time telling you about it. And if you weren't here, you wouldn't have heard it anyways. Uh, and that is one of my favorite little... Uh, Things that happens uh, in literature is uh, Walker Percy. He's one of my favorite writers. He was a Southern Gothic uh, Catholic novelist. And in one of his later books, he had a character named Will Barrett. Now, Will Barrett was modeled a little bit after Walker Percy himself. See, Walker Percy's own granddad committed suicide in his mid-40s with a gunshot to his head. Walker's own dad then followed suit and in his mid-40s put a shotgun to his head and almost killed himself, or did kill himself. Walker Percy then himself... 
third generation in his 40s considered strongly committing suicide. And so he puts this exact, uh, this exact experience in the, his character, Will Barrett. So Will Barrett finds himself in the mid-40s. You can imagine this is a stand-in for Walker Percy in this book, The Second Coming. Will Barrett is thinking through these stories. What does it mean that my granddad did this? What does it mean that my dad did it and couldn't make it past this hurdle? What does it mean that I'm here now and considering the same thing? Am I doomed? What do all these clues mean for me and for my life and for my story? Is mine a story of despair and fruitlessness? Or is there a chance that I could push through and my story would be a story of hope? And where exactly is God in all of this? Where was he then? Where is he now? Is there any future for me with God in it? And he's angry that God is silent, that all he has is these clues and no one to explain to him what these clues mean. So he gets real testy and he does like a Pascal's wager, right? And he says, guess what, God, I'm going to make you prove to me whether or not you're real. I don't understand these clues. And so I want you to show yourself. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into this cave. He found a cave out there in the woods. And I'm going to go in that cave, and I'm going to fast, I'm going to stay in that cave, and one of two things is going to happen, God. You're going to show yourself to me, and you're going to reveal to yourself to me in an amazing sign and make it clear that I know that you're real and that you love me, and I'll walk out of that cave and I'll live my life. The other, answer, the other, opportunity, the other possibility is that I will go in there, and you will never speak, and I will die, and I'll prove that you don't exist to myself. And so he goes into this cave and he looks for a sign and he's there for numbers of days he's getting hungry and scared there is no sign there is no nothing and all of a sudden he starts getting ooh, a debilitating toothache and then it gets worse and worse until he's got migraines and now the pain is so bad that he can't even stay and have a slow death he runs out and goes to the hospital until they can pull the tooth and fix him What does this sign mean? <laughs> was that a sign of God's presence? Not the kind he was asking for. <laughs> was it a sign of God's absence? Or was it just nothing? Just a sign of materialism and the natural course of things in our human bodies. What did this clue mean? And I tell you this story because this is often how most of us find ourselves trying to take the little bits of clues in our lives and discern in our own power what they mean. Is God here? Is he not here? Is he for me? Is he against me? What does this toothache mean anyways? Right? And this is the problem, perhaps the primary problem, with what has been called individualism. I'm not going to insult your intelligence. I imagine you know what we mean by individualism. It is de facto the God of the West. We might disagree on many, many things, but we all agree that the individual reigns supreme. And this is difficult because most cultures haven't thought this. They've often thought the group means something more than the individual. And it's helpful to understand that those, that has abuses as well. And a focus on individual rights and opportunities and happiness and well-being matters. And your individuality matters. A pilgrimage We've been talking about pilgrimage. It requires you as an individual to make the decision to step out your front door and continue to walk. It requires you as an individual to choose to keep walking every day. You are an individual and it matters that you're an individual. You have to continue the journey again as an individual. But the true 
Christian pilgrimage is never just an isolated individual going out into the wilderness and disappearing. A true Christian pilgrimage, while there may be seasons of isolation and solitude for many reasons, not the least of which might be a global pandemic, a true Christian pilgrimage always leads to others. A true Christian pilgrimage always leads to others. Why? Because that's where God is most fully known. Again, in the case of these Psalms that we're going to look at in just a second, they're walking up to the city of Shalom, Jerusalem, and to the temple, to the place where God dwells above the ark. And they're getting together with people from all the other tribes, this 360 circumference, if you will. Everyone's coming. They're coming together. They're meeting with the gathered people of God in God's presence. And this is so important because we, alone like Will Barrett, are not enough. Friends, alone you are not enough to interpret your circumstances. You are smart, but you're not smart enough. You're good, but you're not good enough. You are strong, but you are not strong enough. You are desirous of God, but not desirous enough. You are not omniscient, not omnipotent, not omnipresent, nor anything else that would allow us to discern God truly and fully and his presence and the presence of his kingdom in the details of your life, in the clues that are before you. Augustine himself, I had this long quote I'm going to skip, but Augustine himself, the great Augustine, one of the greatest theologians and Christians in the history of the church, himself started his book, his memoir, his uh, confessions of his life, his autobiography. And in the first page, the first paragraph, really, he says, you made us for yourself, God's our heart. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And then chapter two begins, but where the heck can I find you? I call on you. Are you contained here? Are you contained there? Are you contained in me? Am I supposed to go look down for you in the depths or in the heights? I don't have any knowledge of where to find you. That's how Augustine begins his confessions. We are not enough on our own. We must make pilgrimage as individuals and families and friends and small churches and large churches, seeking God, seeking his kingdom, seeking to live lives full of meaning and purpose, and true Christian pilgrimage will always lead back to others. This is where we get the full picture. The full panorama. This is where all the little pieces of the puzzle come together and you can see where you fit in. And I want to see this in a moment in our psalm today. But I also just want to give a little hint. We are going to dig deeper into this theme in the fall. This matters not just for you as an individual. It matters for us as a community, as people that live for now, at least in New York City, in these United States of America, here we are in a 50-year decline of church and of faith communities. It's been called the greatest decline of faith and of Christianity in America in its entire history. It's been called the great de-churching. You've heard it called the rise of the nuns, those who believe in nothing, N-O-N-E. And of course, the pandemic just sort of made these trends supersonic. It's hyperspeed to the next, to the next level just lost people in faith communities coming to gatherings like this, left and right. And these effects, statisticians, even non-Christians that are just studying this, 
will tell you again and again that it is a key piece, this trend, of the eroding of the cohesion of everything in our culture, of the great polarization, of the way it destroys cooperative endeavors and institutions. It's led to greater and greater and more passionate tribalism. And this shouldn't surprise you because even though we love individualism, we are social animals. No one can truly live alone. So instead of living into something bigger and greater of God's, we find little smaller like-minded groups that coalesce around common answers to our questions. Oh, here's why you got the toothache. (laughs) It's that guy over there. He was poisoning you or whatever. We find these answers to our questions. We find common enemies and we find conflict. And so individualism itself begins to fuel tribalism and polarization and toxic meltdown of common life and thus despair. Now, we are not new in this. Israel, that was given this psalm to sing on their mouths, shared similar problems. If you know the story, you'll remember that at this time in their history, again and again, they forgot God. They stopped worshiping him in Jerusalem or coming on these pilgrimages. They turned to other kings and to lesser gods. And it turned into internecine tribal pride and conflict to them stop gathering together to a divided kingdom, to war, to exile. And see, the Bible speaks to our experience. And our sermons here are based on the Bible. And so when this Playlist for Pilgrimage series is over, we're going to spend some weeks on a new series called Why Church? Why Now? Why Church? Why Now? See, we are leaving the church, and it is our peril that our friends and neighbors and some of us have said, no more pilgrimage for me. No more pilgrimage for me. I, I don't make sense of these clues. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop walking. And we need someone to speak up about the danger and the peril that we're in and to remind us of the beauty of pilgrimage. We need someone to speak up. Reminds me of a story. A friend of mine, he's kind of an eccentric dude. His name's Joey. He lives in Miami. And some years ago, uh, Joey was wanting to do something special for his mom. His mom uh, was a recent widow, and she was in ill health. She'd always wanted to travel. She was alone. She lived in rural Arkansas. And so he came up with this idea. He's, again, a little bit eccentric. He went in Miami to one of these exotic pet stores, and he found this rare bird. And this rare bird was taught to at least dabble or speak five languages. And so he arranged for this bird to be sent to his mom in Arkansas. Uh, He waited to find his alert that it was delivered. He waited about 24 hours so she could get it and spend time with it, kind of surprise her. And then he called her up the next evening. He says, Mom, how'd you like that bird? She said, Joey, I love that bird. It was delicious. And Joey said, Mom, you weren't supposed to eat the bird. The bird spoke five languages, Mom. It was a rare bird. It's an exotic and expensive bird. And she said, well, if he spoke five languages, when he saw the pot of boiling water, he should have spoke up, right? <laughs> We're going to speak up. We're going to speak up this morning and this fall about why it matters. That alone, we are in trouble. We can't interpret all of the clues And we need one another. We need the church. All pilgrimage leads to others if it leads to God. And so this is the psalm and the song that was put on the lips of these pilgrims to speak up, to speak out to one another as they came up to the city. 
And it tells us that we are part of a bigger story than our own story because we're part of a people bigger than ourselves. And so I want you to hear this first. We share in a faith bigger than our individual faith because we have a shared past. We have a shared past. Hear it here. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. They're called to start reciting this history. Not, only, not of their founding even, but of their great king David. Of the one who made this temple, of the one who built this dwelling place for God. Where they could find him still today. They were called to say, we shared this history. Remember David, O Lord. Remember our king who did all these things. Remember what was in his heart. He wanted you to have a resting place where people could always be sure to find you. And he did that and you helped him do it. And you dwell there. Remember our past. We share this path together, past together. And they sing it out. They speak it out to one another. And this is important to remember that our faith, your personal faith journey starts even before you do. It starts only in the beginning of all things, of course. But in the life of Jesus, in the life of all those who pass the faith down, in the life and faith of those who have spoke to you a word, This old song is resung now by the people of God on pilgrimage. And their memories, their historical memories are revived and relived. They're walking up and remembering they're not the first persons to go up these steps. They're not the first persons to slip over those big boulders and struggle to get past this piece of the path. No, many have come up these same roads, these same paths. In fact, David had brought the ark and he'd carried it up. And he put it up there for his people. And now we get to go and be a part of this thing that others accomplished for us. And so if we are going to live adequately and maturely as the people of God, we need more data to work with than our own experience. You need to know you have a history that is bigger than just your personal history. I hope you do deep diligence with a spiritual director or a psychotherapist or just your journal or friends with your own personal history. But as people of God on pilgrimage, we need to remind each other that your story is much bigger than just your personal history. We need evidence that takes into account all that God has done through Jesus Christ and through all the saints in history. That you don't just look at the clues and say, well, God doesn't answer my prayer. I feel like God's judging me. I don't really know if God forgives me. This thing in my life makes me feel sad about whether or not he's around. Is the only person you consult yourself. Is the only experience that you use to evaluate your circumstances based on what you can come up with. Who do you consult when you're reflecting on your story? Where do you look for God? Is it just whether or not you have spouse, house, career, and kids? Oh, cool, he must be present, yay. Or divorce, bankruptcy, loneliness, the news. He must be absent, oh no. No, see, we need other experiences. We need the community of experience of our brothers and sisters in the church, the centuries of experience provided by our biblical ancestors. As Eugene Peterson puts it, 
a Christian who has David in his bones and Jeremiah in his bloodstream and Paul in his fingertips, fingertips and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little value to put on his own momentary feelings and the experience of the past week. We have a shared history. We have a shared presence. I meant to say present, but I actually have it in here as a pun. Present, or not a pun, but a illusion. Present, presence. We have a shared present and a shared presence. This is one of the things I learned most from my African-American friends in this community when I moved here some, whatever it was, 15 years ago. Uh, it was a little bit different than in sort of my suburban experience, which was multiracial, but here specifically in an urban African-American neighborhood, I was surprised by how much they seemed to celebrate things like small achievements or what I considered small. Like, for example, graduating second grade. Do we really need all the balloons and all the stuff and a full gown for second grade graduation? Come on. I have four kids. It's a little bit too much for me, right? Or the way that so many of my friends felt a real deep connection to certain folks who'd made it out of the neighborhood and were now famous or celebrities. I don't feel that close to any celebrities. I just don't. I mean, Matthew McConaughey is part of my alma mater. I think he's hilarious. I don't like know him or like get, feel special if something nice happens to him. But a lot of my friends did. And they taught me about this. See, when you have a sense of solidarity, when you've been a minority, when you've been put down, when you've been oppressed and hurt and you come together as a people with something bigger than just yourself if one of you makes it out then you all made it out and they're representing the fact that we can make it one of us is up there one of us is up there doing that crazy thing on the field one of their making that beautiful music one of that person is now the president and it is us they represent us and our people they've made it we are present in all of those places it's beautiful, a kind of solidarity and connection and belonging to something bigger than yourself in the present. And it's encouraging to people. It means one of us is up there. One of us is sharing in the blessings. And it gives us hope for ourselves and for our kids. And they keep making it through these grades. They might do the same thing. And we have pride. And I always say that's beautiful. And yet, but, and this is for all of us, whoever your heroes are, Michelle Obama is not sharing her book sale proceeds with you. You're not invited to Spike Lee's green room. Our heroes don't actually share their blessings, but see in the pilgrimage of faith, of Christianity, our hero, our heroes do share their blessings with us. Where they are present, they bring us to be with them. Verse 7 and beyond. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, he says. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Do you see the picture there? We're going up. To a place that I'm sure was a little more glorious than this beautiful building. But they're going to a place which is still just a place. Built out of raw material. With an Ark of the Covenant in it. And they're coming to this place. This Ark of the Covenant was just a box. 45 inches long. 27 inches broad. 27 inches deep. Constructed of wood. And covered with gold. 
The lid was solid gold. It was called the mercy seat, and they had two cherubim, angel-like figures on either side. And in this space, it was said God would come and dwell with his people to be a symbol and an actual experience of the presence of God with his people. And he went with this ark as they carried it around. It became a kind of reminder that God was with them wherever they went in the everyday, ordinary experience. And they get to go up and gaze upon it and be near it and be around it. And they hear that the Lord himself has chosen of all the places in the world he wants to be to come down and sit with them, to dwell with them here I dwell. This is where you can find me because I desire you. That's what he says. See, God is with us. He desires to dwell with us. This morning, our heroes don't, not really. But God is with us when we are together, when we recite our shared past and point out his current presence in the means he's given us to experience him. It was the ark for them. It's a few extra things for us. The things, places, peoples, and stories that he says, that's where you can find me. You don't have to guess. You don't have to go into a cave. I'm right there. Go. I'm with you. I'm dwelling there because I desire you. I desire to be with you. Our God is our king, and he's with us here now, leading us by the hand just as he did with them. We have a shared past, a shared present and presence, and a shared future. The end of the song goes like this. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout up for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on, on him his crown will shine. It's this beautiful picture of the inheritance that he's going to give his people the inheritance of glory and riches and wealth and peace and dignity and joy and beauty and harmony and love. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Just as I desire to be with you, I desire to bring you all these good things. This is your shared future. You can count on it. You might have come from that village over there. You're like, man, it's no good. The well ran dry. We're all fighting over what little's going around. It's like family versus family. Now it's within the family. Nothing's going good. Maybe God's not here. I don't know. It's all the way up there. I don't even have the money to travel this year. And yet you go up and you're reminded this is not your future. This is your future. I'm here and you're going to come. I'm going to come, God, he says, and I'm going to be with you. And bless you. All the verb tenses at this part of the psalm are future. It means that our pilgrimage is meant to be fulfilled and fueled by hope. That we have a shared inheritance. It's not just for me. It's not just for the Galts or the Stedmans. It's for all of us. To keep hope. That we have something more than any nation state in any era of this world can ever offer. As good or as troubled as it might be. More than any economic system can ever offer. More than any relationship can offer. More than the best you can wring out of life can offer. There's an inheritance that will never rust, never perish, never fade. Laid in wait for you and for me and for all of us. God is going to win it for us. We will win when all the saints get to go in together to the blessings. And so Christian, just a couple minutes applying it specifically. To us, we have a shared past, a shared present, a shared future. And we read Psalm 132 as Jesus himself did, saying that all of the Old Testament speaks of him. 
This is a psalm about David and the things David had done for Israel, the great king, the man after God's own heart, who'd secured the temple, who'd secured the peace and one unified kingdom, who loved God so full-bloodedly. He was a God-intoxicated man who was trying constantly to please God, to be a king on behalf of his people, to actually serve and to protect. David, in some ways, is the best that we human beings can do. He's one of the most fully human alive beings that ever lived, a man after God's own heart. But his life falls apart, of course, spiritually, physically, and emotionally, just like ours do sometimes. His family tears itself apart. He almost loses his kingdom to a rebellious son named Absalom. Within a few generations, David's great kingdom began to crumble. His dynasty slowed and meandered until it was just a stinking swamp of human ineptitude and sin. The best of us, like David, cannot build a kingdom that will last. But in this psalm, they are promised a son who would reign. In this psalm, we sing in verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will never, ever turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne and it will be an everlasting throne. You remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary about her promised son, Jesus? He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, at Bethlehem, God takes the raw material of David's brilliant and flawed humanity, our humanity, and he fuses it in Mary's womb with his own divine spirit to create a new human being. As John writes near the end of Revelation, Christ is the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. In Christ, the Holy Spirit is remaking us into a shining, new, united humanity, righteous and robust, pure and passionate, kingly and kind, just and gentle. When Jesus entered Jerusalem with the pilgrims for the Passover feast, just as these pilgrims had done in the climactic final week of his life, the pilgrims there broke out into a song of praise to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. See, in Christ... All of the promises, all of the past, all of the present, presence, and all of the future promises to David are fulfilled and given and extended in and through Jesus, our Lord. They're joined together and fulfilled in Christ. He is the house. He is the city of Shalom. He is the temple. He is the ark. He is the presence between the cherubim. He is the dwelling place of God. He's the son of David, the eternal king who God promised will rule his people with love and justice forever. And this is your king. This is your story. This is why you've come this morning to hear that you have a bigger story than the one that you tell yourself every morning and during the day and at night. You are part of something much bigger and noble and greater and everlasting than anything you could build on your own. You have the shared past. You have the shared present. And you have the shared future in Jesus. And so why the church? Why does pilgrimage always leave, lead from an individual to a community? Because Jesus. Jesus loves the church for whatever reason. I love it some days and some days it makes me really hurt and ashamed. Jesus never stops loving the church. He's better and bigger more omniscient, more good, more strong, more patient, more loving than I am. Jesus actually says, I am the church. See, it's like I'm the head and you're my body. If you want to find me, you come to the church. 
See, faith needs the body of Christ simply because that's where he most fully dwells. That's when all the puzzle pieces come together and you even can have a glimpse of what he's up to. Did you hear Romans when it said, you might have all kinds of disagreements, man. Some of y'all are into fasting. Some of y'all are into feasting. Some of you like to eat meat. Some of you are vegetarians. Some of you are a little right. Some of you are a little left. Some of you are rich. Some of you are poor. Some of you are this color, that color, this age, that age. Guess what? None of us live to ourselves. We die and live to one another because we die and live to Christ. We are a part of something bigger and more special. And our pilgrimage should bring us together again. Imagine, I'm going to try it, David Attenborough, get the drone shot, all of us coming up to church, and look at these homo sapiens, beginning their great migration up the hill again to compose this special event. It's a miracle, friends. It's a miracle what we do, because God is the one doing it. And we can see the city just now. We're climbing up the foothills. You can see all the festivity just over the horizon. The smells start to hit us. And we remember and are told to speak up. We're together back then because Christ has got us back then. He defeated death and sin and Satan. We are together now because this is where he promises to gather us and to be present. And we are together in the future because he will never fail us, never forsake us, never let us fall down in such a way that we can't get up and keep going. Where is God? He's with you everywhere, but he is most fully with you when you are together. And so make pilgrimage, friends, towards God. Make pilgrimage toward one another. Become his people again this morning and experience in his blessing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh...